Welcome to another episode of Pod Like a Hole presents a space pod of tea where three men in their late 30s go through David Bowie's discography in random order by rolling the uh, cursed diamond dice. Uh, we picked it up from the same person that sold the Mogwai to the old man in Gremlins. Um, and that seems to have also cursed our podcasting platforms. We cannot catch a break, folks, but we do it for you. This is your host, Mark. I'm always joined by my cohorts in crime. That would be Eric and Steve. Let's hear from them. Thanks, Mark, and uh, crank those BPMs, baby. Come on, let's ride the train. This is Eric. It sure is. What about Steven? See there. Yes, I'm here, and uh, I'll be here all night until the break of dawn for this rave of Bowie we're going to go through. We sure are, because in this episode, we're traveling back to 1997, when it was a innocent time where Janko jeans was the uniform of the day, and soul patches on faces with spiky blonde, bleach blonde tips, and... Um, and the sound of jungle bass, just drums. Uh, it's the sound of Casio keyboards on demo mode uh, that were being looped through computers. So we are going to be talking about David Bowie's 1997 album, Earthling, uh, where it went on to influence such tracks as Prodigy's Smack My Bitch Up and Madonna's Ray of Light. Actually, probably <laughs> Prodigy's... <laughs> It was running the gamut. Yeah, um, I think you beat him to the punch there, pal. But yeah, yeah, you really, they probably you really did. Think, I don't. I don't think anyone in the electronica genre looked at David Bowie and said, "I'm going to do what he's doing." <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, whatever's going on here on this was uh, already. Uh, let's say the tail was wagging the dog as far as Bowie's concerned with his influences on this. It's probably true. He was probably looking at the tastemakers of the day, like Crystal Method, um, and seeing how they were going to influence that Bowie fresh sound. Um, so, we are going to get into it. This album certainly is a touchstone. If you harken uh, back to season one, where we talked about Trent Reznor and the Nine Inch Nails, um, this album has a little bit of that ninstery, if you will. Um, that will probably dabble a little bit in there. Um, but otherwise, are you guys ready to travel back in time to that innocent, the end of Bill Clinton's term? Oh, yeah. Was oh, it, yeah, uh, for sure. No. Well, hold on. I mean, the, the, sure, the, it was close to the end, but it was 1997. Uh, he still had a it few was, more years there. That's true. It was the second year of his second term. Um of course, where Mark, me and it Steven, was the end of his, um, his, his, his reign as a moral leader of the country. Absolutely. I mean, if I can actually go back in time, the, the year 1996, me and Stephen, uh, just being the Everall contrarians, we were really waving that flag for Bob Dole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, makes, it makes absolutely no sense. It was just, you know, we I don't even think we knew what Bob Dole really believed in, but being a couple of uh, teenagers that just wanted to go against the grain, and even at conservative Loomis, where uh, you'd think that would have been the, the, the fit, everyone kind of knew that Clinton was, was the guy, and we're just going to keep that, the, the Bill Clinton good vibes rolling. But uh, no, you know, 
Mark and I, who couldn't vote, we were Bob Dole supporters. Wait, are you, are you fucking serious? <laughs> yep. <laughs> what? <laughs> I think you just we just really like Jack Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were. <laughs> he really knew he had to hold a pin. Um, but no, uh, I think it was that Norm Macdonald impression that would just won us over. <laughs> sure. Well, that's forgivable then. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but thank, I mean, thankfully, like I said, we, we weren't a voting age. But at the same time, I think we still took this thing more seriously than a lot of people do today with the way the, uh, the old country's going. So. Oh, man, your, your dads must have just been grinning from ear to ear to watch you boys, watch you boys holding up that flag. <laughs> oh, yep. well, yeah it's all right it's all right my dad was was probably a dull fan during that during that era i was uh i think i was apolitical at that at that point in time but i'd be able to vote in the next election and then throw a vote away to mr ralph nader so there you go there you go that's even more offensive <laughs> all righty so 1997 y'all now this one you know we, we, were, we were we were alive for um big news this is the year we lost our uh not our but uh, the world collective our our princess diana uh uh died in her, in her uh, crash um uh, we also got um have you ever heard of something called the Montreal Screwjob? Uh, Steve, this is a question to you. The Montreal Screwjob. No, uh, it's, it's not in my video library. Never heard of it. This, this is when wrestler Bret Hart was unaware he was going to lose the WWF Championship belt during the 97 Survivor Series. And so they, uh, they surprised him with that loss and called it the Montreal Screwjob. You know, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, I do know that. I do know about that. That was a little bit after, like, that was when I kind of was paying attention to wrestling, but not much. I was more of an early 90s guy. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I have heard about that, and there's, I think there's a, even a couple of documentaries about it. So, if we ever get any big wrestling nerds on the show, I'm sure we could bring it up to them, and they'll, they'll, they'll speak of it uh, the same way we do when we talk about, uh, I don't know, John F. Kennedy being shot, and where we were when we first watched the movie JFK. That's right. That's right. Um, this is kind of a weird one, um, just because it's topical because of all the um, the shows that have moments of blackface, you know, getting the episodes canceled um, or, or removed from streaming platforms. Uh, now, Sir Patrick Stewart, now, don't worry, don't worry, he's, he's, he's still beloved, but he was going to be in a production of Othello, and he worked with the producers on that um, because, it, you know, obviously... Wasn't comfortable with being blackface, so they did a photo negative. So he he acted opposite an entire black cast, but they filmed it all and used the photo negative effect. So he looked black like Othello's supposed to be, and all the black the the uh, black supporting actors looked looked white. So that was that was the way they tackled that one. The '90s special effects. Um, uh, more socially conscious than we are now. Apparently. Uh, so we've got, uh, this is the, the year we got that classic Pokemon episode, Electric Soldier Porygon. They gave everybody, uh, seizures. I've never, I've never played one game of Pokemon or watched one episode. Why? 
Uh, we got that Pokemon Go, and then the kids got bored with it in a day. And that's about as far as we as we got with it. Uh, so we uh, we lost uh, uh, Chris Farley and Notorious B.I.G. We lost John Denver. Um, we lost uh, Jimmy Stewart, World War II hero Jimmy Stewart. Now Chris Chris Farley, that's a uh, that's a death where I remember where I was when I heard that he died. That was a that was a sad sad day. Where where, I, where was I? I was in high school, and I think I was standing somewhere out front of the library, and uh, that was that was the same place where I I learned that Phil Hartman died. That was a that was a bad place for me to stand around. Was his last movie uh, almost Heroes with Richard Lewis, or am I in a fever dream? No, you're correct. Okay. Wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's it's almost Heroes. Um, not to be confused with um, John Candy's last role, which was another like uh, like uh, exploring Canadian like bacon. Not Canadian bacon. There was another one where it was like a pioneer movie. But... Wagons East. There you go. Wagons East. That's the one with Richard Lewis. I'm not crazy about it, but you know, you got stuff like Friends, Touched by an Angel. You've got, of course, Monday Night Football are the big ones, but you've got Seinfeld and Frasier taking the top slots for 1997 TV. Good shows. I had fond memories of watching them when they were on. I have fond memories of watching them now. I've been watching Seinfeld at least two episodes a day for weeks now, maybe months. And, uh, we all know how I feel about Fraser Crane, so that's right. But that's I, I tell right. you, revisiting Seinfeld, I, I just we're not treading any new ground here. But my God, what a funny show! And just just sometimes thinking of some of the things that George Costanza would say can make me guffaw in the middle of the day. So thank you, Jason <laughs> Alexander. Your buffoonery cheers me up decades later. <laughs> all right, so uh, music. Um, this is an interesting time for music. Um, you've got even just a year or two earlier, you'd have some more grunge oriented or, or kind of more noisier alternative rock taking up alternative radio. And that kind of gave way to a more radio friendly, um, radio friendly bands like Third Eye Blind or Hanson's Mbop. Um, and, uh, actually radio rock was, wasn't getting as much airtime as your rap and R&B artists. It was a big year for rap and R&B. You know, you had obviously the death of Notorious B.I.G., but his song Hypnotize was huge off of um, his, uh, he dropped his, uh, his album that also had like Mo Money, More Problems, I'll Be Missing You. I think that's the, that's not Born to Die. That's Life After Death, um, that huge double album. Um. You also had uh, pretty much all of Puff Daddy's Bad Boys. This is a big year for Bad, for bad Boy Records um, with your uh, Faith Hills and, um, you know, your Mace, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, not my, uh, not my, not my era of, uh, or not, it's my era, but not my, that's not my preferred record label, of course. Um, this is a great year for No Limit, but they're apparently not on this list. So, <laughs> and Wu-Tang Clan, um, great year for them as well. So, uh, of course, Elton John's Candle in the Wind 97 uh, made, made major news this, uh, this, this, this 1997. Uh, so, um, of course, uh, in the background, 
for a few years now the uh, the U the the techno uh, house music jungle music from the UK was definitely a its own culture and heavily inspired this album which we'll which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah, let's just let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, uh, this is this is a couple years earlier than uh, when it really hit me, but in 1999, the rave culture uh, definitely absorbed this humble host, and um, oh my god, it was embarrassing. Uh, giant uh, vinyl Sugar Hill Gang pants, um, both my eyebrows pierced, and bad haircuts, like shaving everything except for my bangs. Or shaving my bangs and leaving the rest of my hair, and those uh, those terrible bracelets and uh, bad shoes, um, just bad, just bad. Going to raves every weekend for a while, and uh, this span of time was probably only maybe really three months, but uh, it, it seemed to last forever. And thank God it happened before the internet was really at its full power. So there you go, folks. This humble host Steve, uh, he had a raver phase. And uh, not proud of it. Uh, I'm thankful that Mark stuck by me through it and was still around after it. That was very nice of him. And um, there you go. I do recall those days wearing the pacifier necklaces and the candy bracelets, as it was uh, to be known as. Um, but the the girl that uh, Stephen was with, they really got into that scene. And I've never seen Steve's pants like the leggings of it uh, ballooned. It was, uh, <laughs> I, just, I don't, I don't know what it was all about. It was, it was terrible. terrible I like time imagine, uh, Mark just, it's the first day Steve showed up in school in that style. Mark just looking at him and thinking, why can't I be that free? <laughs> it's true. You know, what, you know, what's funny. You know, what's funny about it is it actually, it really took hold towards the end of us graduating high school. It did. It was it was the end of high school and then the summer after high school. That was the height of the stupidity. That would have been around late 1999. But lucky for me, it happened just at the end of high school. So on the day we did our graduation walk, I was, you know, really just going to stick it to the man. And I wore all that stupid candy and shit in our graduation <laughs> walk. <laughs> I can, got my little high school diploma, sat in that stage covered in that nonsense <laughs> oh. oh yeah that's right oh yeah look at yeah are you sure bob dole wanted you as a supporter at that point <laughs> uh i know um, not half it, it's only half as, of, as of offensive as uh, david bowie's haircuts and facial hair at the time it's true it's so. true it's true it wasn't it wasn't that out, out, out of the out of uh out of left field i um i i i was to a certain degree into the electronic music of the time. Um, I just coming off of, you know, three or four years of being really into industrial music. I kind of, I like the noisier side of it, your Aphex twins. Um, but then some of like around this time, some of the more poppy techno, like your fat boy slims and your um, crystal methods came out. And I did, I did enjoy that stuff quite a bit. That's not like the house or the jungle stuff that, that really influenced this album, but All right. Oh, okay. So 1997 was also the year that I got my driver's license. And um, I remember 
going to Tower Records to pick up a copy of Prodigy's Fat of the Land because me and Steven saw the video for Firestarter. So I didn't really get too heavily uh, involved into the electronical electronica music uh, genre in that sense, but I was certainly becoming aware of it. Prodigy was uh, certainly a tentpole. Um, so it was Chemical Brothers during this time with Block Rock and Beats from Dig Your Own Hole. Um, and then later, I believe Crystal Method may have released an album this year or the next year. Um, and that's pretty much all my, I guess, uh, exposure to electronic music and, the, and just pure, you know, two guys at a computer and then yeah. away you go. I was definitely, I was definitely partial to the drum and bass. I think what introduced me to that was cause I was buying at this point, at this point I had tried to buy as much nothing record stuff as I could. And I got plug that Luke Vibert and meet beat manifesto. Um, and I liked the kind of sample have heavy chop shop style of, of, uh, like break beats and stuff. And there was a little bit of a, you know, there, it, it transitioned well into hip hop, which I was starting to get into at that time. So that was, that was definitely, I seem to know a little bit more about, about that side of things. And this album definitely uses a lot of the drum and bass. So, um, uh, it, 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 it fell on, on kind ears as far as I'm concerned when I had first heard it back then. Um, you know, you know what I, you know what I said this time that if, uh, if it wasn't Paul Oakenfold, it wasn't shit. Um, <laughs> happy to be hardcore. <laughs> uh, sad, sad, sadly, that's a BT. There's some truth to that joke. Um, I was consuming a lot of the popular version of electronic music, like all the stuff Mark rattled off. Um, I definitely think that some of the more authentic sounding electronic music, uh, it has its place. Some of it holds up. I don't think the three of us are really the ones to speak to it um, intelligently. Um, there's definitely a point in my life where I listen to it often. If I were to go back, I'd say that some of the artists I still enjoy, so some of which I saw then, I saw wow. the Chemical Brothers back then, and that was great, and I still really like them. Um, yeah, one one act I didn't really see that definitely wasn't strictly electronica, but David Bowie was definitely trying to go for their vibe, was also a primal scream from that time. I felt really uh, had, a, it had an electronic vibe that seemed very organic in a way that and that holds up for me and i got doff punk obviously sure that, a, that they were they were coming to prominence around this time the brit pop did a brit pop did a pretty good job incorporating because all you know a lot of those guys loved going to the tech like the techno parties uh you know in the uk with with people like you know orbital and um you know a lot of those across the pond uh techno guys and so anyways brit pop incorporated it into their music from time to time to, you know, very successful. Measures. Another thing that I wanted to mention was yeah. uh, what really, I guess, piqued my interest in the whole uh, kind of techno uh, genre was, of course, the film Trainspotting. It ends with that great underworld song, Born Slippy, as Ewan McGregor is monologuing oh, about yeah. choosing life. Uh, that one is 
uh, that a it's it's it, it holds a really warm spot in my heart. Um, but that's a great song. Done. No, I was gonna say this is a great year for movies, though, guys. Just really quick, you got uh, oh wait, oh you got the Star Wars special editions came out this year. We all know we lined up in the theaters for those. I did. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I saw them all. I saw them all. Yep. Uh, we got Face Off, which I, that's a f- fine, I, fine film. Fine film. Hey, that you can watch that maybe once a year and 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 still be surprised by that movie. Um. You know, you got Anaconda, Batman and Robin. A movie me and Steve saw in the theaters together. Yes, we yeah. saw Batman and Robin in the theaters together. And may he rest in peace, Joel Schumacher, who died this week. Uh, he made nonsense like Batman and Robin. Maybe we didn't just get it, but he also made great movies like uh, Falling Down and uh, The Lost Boys, if you will. But I think Falling Down, I think it holds up. I liked it then. I like it now. And right now, with all the aggrieved white people throwing fits in the Trader Joe's, it's a movie for our times. Oh, yeah. Uh, we also got Men in Black, L.A. Confidential, Lost Highway. There were some, there were some cool movies. Cool movies. Mark show. and I also, we saw Lost uh, L.A. Confidential in the theater together as well. On my birthday, and I got in an accident in the Chili's. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the accident oh. machine. Remember, Steve? I think <laughs> yes. that's where that nickname started. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder where that. I wonder where that truck is now. It's just. Uh, it's in, it's in a, a a pick and pull somewhere. I'm sure. You know, I hate to say this. Uh, so my dad, he sold it at the Sierra College like uh, auto, and he did sell it to uh, some Hispanic landscapers. And that is the the truth. And hopefully, it's still out there banging around in that shitty paint job and doing what it needs to do. Hopefully everyone that drives it is safe. <laughs> exactly. Because boy, oh boy. It was a magnet. It was the accident machine. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, one time, uh, famously, I didn't get my license until I was 20. I was too busy going to raves. And um, uh, I'd, I'd stay at Mark's house for days on end. And then he'd take me home because he had to get me out of there some somehow. And... I think his sister was like dating somebody new or something. And Mark went to take me back to my house and just backed up into the guy's fucking like Corvette. Yep. Something like that. It was something like that. Yep. <laughs> that was great. Oh man. My <laughs> sister came out and like did this dramatic collapse in the front yard. Uh-huh. Oh man. It was all because Steve oh, didn't wow. have his license. <laughs> oh wow. Oh wow. Yeah. I had uh, a few accidents in my, in my early years driving as well. I did, but Guys, that's 97. We kind of talked about where we were, crashing cars. Um, Did we not talk about men crashing into each other? In 1997, in the world of sports, there still are no sports. There are no sports right now, but uh, baseball is teasing there's going to be a 60-game season. Did you see that, Mark? The hyper season. It's going to be video game mode. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the teams that the, the Oakland athletics famously get hot in the second half. So are they going to be hot or is this going to still be the first half to them? I, I don't know. Chronologically, it would be the second half. So we'll see. But, uh, speaking of sports, the Chicago Bulls, they, uh, they won the finals again. 
They beat the Jazz 4-2. So, old Michael Jordan kept winning things. And over in football, in Super Bowl 31, the Green Bay Packers beat the New England Patriots. Folks, folks, if you're listening to me, uh, the Patriots, we're no fan of the Patriots in this podcast, and most of America shouldn't be fans of the Patriots. And as you're aware, aware Tom Brady is no longer with the Patriots, and they drafted or, or signed Cam Newton to a one-year deal today. Cam Newton is going to be a Patriot. So there you go. You heard it here first. And by that, that you probably heard it two weeks ago. <laughs> and uh, in baseball, oh, good Lord. The ugliest team in all of baseball. The Florida Marlins beat the Cleveland Indians uh, to win yes. the World Series. Game seven. It came close. The next year, the Florida Marlins famously dismantled that team because uh, whoever used to own them, can't remember his name at the top of my head, he was a bad owner. Man, if you do that right after you win a World Series, I mean, it's, it's not the worst time to do Have it. Have you seen yes. who was on that roster that year? It was like a murderer's row who all like went in to be almost Hall of Famers. It was crazy. All right, well, we've talked about where we were and where the world was, so where was Bowie? Bowie was careening back to New York City after his outside tour, which whenever we get to outside, which should be coming up soon, um, we'll talk about, in fact, there's a new live album just announced um, of the outside tour, uh, specifically Bowie's half of that and the songs he did, because he picked some really interesting things. Uh, I think I sent, I think I sent Steve a link. There was a a rare performance of Teenage Wildlife, which he did every night on that tour. That's so, amazing. That's fun. Yeah. Um, and he was just feeling like his band was tight. They were clicking. Uh, they were they were trying some things. They were transitioning to some of the electronic-based stuff on outside pretty well live. Um, obviously, they 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 melded well with Nine Inch Nails during their their performances together. And they were they they were feeling to use Mark's term cooking. Like they were cooking, and they were, they wanted to hit the studio as soon as they got back. Um, so they split it between the Montreux, Switzerland studio and Looking Glass Studios in New York City. And, um, you know, Bowie was very much inspired uh, by the, the jungle and drum and bass music of the time. And he wanted to do it, but he wanted to do it with his live band because he, he felt like uh, they were like they were hitting on all cylinders. So, you know, he... He went in and he and Reeves Gabriels, who Gabriels, they were, um, they were definitely the think tank on this album. Um, they knew it was going to be a chop shop production, but they wanted it to be all live instruments. So, um, they got in there, they built their drum beats, uh, from Zachary Alford, drummer Zachary Alford. He would play live and they would cut those into loops. Um, Mike Garson was there, um, plink it away uh and they would use uh, some of his work um and uh gail ann dorsey was there on bass and uh they used a lot of her work but it wasn't like she was playing alive on the songs you know it would, they, they'd take little clips sometimes they would take just little echoey sounds of her like um her like warming up she didn't even know they were recording and they would use those as the bass lines um and then of course you have reeves playing his chainsaw guitar 
Um, we talked about him during his Tin Machine days. Uh, and, you know, when he really liked to show off, he was playing that sonar, you know, guitar shredding. Um, and, you know, he, to, to, to his credit, we, you know, we did talk about how it just kind of wasn't working with Tim Machine, but he did find a way to make it work with Bowie's live band. And, um, and they definitely took that and would cut and cut and screw his guitar licks, uh, all over this. Um, and they did, and he really, you know, they, they did, they wanted to make a dance, a dance album. They wanted to make a drum and bass album, but they wanted to use their live instruments, um, so you're absolutely right about the uh, the cover. Um, there was something about this where you know Bowie's starting to reflect on Britain and and being British more than he's done in his entire career. He got that Union Jack coat from uh, designer Alexander McQueen, um, and uh, that's on that cover of the album. Uh, but yeah, I think. You know, between him and Reeves, they were both equally inspired by drum and bass music and Britpop. And uh, that's kind of the story how the things kind of started coming together. A couple of the songs are older songs that finally found their way on an album, and I'll talk about those when we get to it. But for the most part, that was the process. Yeah, it seemed like they were really excited uh, coming off the tour, and they just wanted to keep keep it going, man, as we've, as we, you know, as he kept it going from... Let's dance into doing tonight, or uh, you know, he kept it going from uh, whatever the hell that other album is we talked about, where he just barreled into the next record. Um, great segue, Steve. But yeah, it, it, it sounded like the, the 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 general sound of Earthling, which was, or I'm sorry, of Outside, which was electronic to an extent. I think it was a little bit more of an industrial vibe. Right. Um, that had more like Brian Eno, so more a little bit more ambience. It definitely yeah. like a, an art house record. Yeah, they definitely they they turned up a bit and they did their own version of that. And this this album though, I mean, yeah, uh, uh, let's see. So Mark Plotty was one of the producers, but also Reeves Gabriel was along with David Bowie. And this whatever uh, uh, I'm gonna have so this this is our first real Reeves Gabriel album we've listened to. We listened to Tin Machine. He was kind of just a guitar player there, I feel. On this, he's really doing his, um, I don't know. I am uh, a less talented Tom Morello act, in my opinion. And uh, you could really feel it on this album. And we'll get into that. But uh, the rest of the personnel on this record was, he had David Bowie on vocals and guitar, samples and keyboards, and he he, he, he plays the saxophone again on this record. Yeah, and Reeves Gabriel on programming, synths, uh, guitars, and vocals. Mark Plotty, programming, keyboards, loops. Galen Dorsey on bass, guitar, and vocals. And I believe this is our first proper Galen Dorsey record. Oh my, these, uh, these beats, these block-rocking beats, I tell you, I tell you, Coco, you know, this, this reminds me of the greatest times of the 70s. And, you know, we never really did disco on our albums, but we discoed. And I'd say the disco tech is alive again in the mid to late 90s in the rave culture. We're here at uh, Coco, where are we? Known as Cal Expo in Sacramento, California. Strange we'd end up here at Gigabeats, it's called. Gigabeats. Yes, it's 3 a.m. almost, you say, Coco. 
My goodness. Well, the party's just getting started, if you ask me. This... Excuse me. Excuse me. Come in the uh, room. Hey. Wow. Excuse me, kind sir. Uh, I'm looking for the glow stick peddler. Have you seen the glow stick peddler? I need some glow stick. Oh, oh my. Oh, Dave. What are you doing at Gigabeats, buddy? Of all the places to find you, Tony, I am not surprised it's all I find you here. Why, it's been... It's been years. Uh, yeah, it's been a few years. I, uh, you think I'd be mad at you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Edged me out of uh, Let's Dance. You, you invited me to the Caribbean at a resort and left me on the beach by myself, and then you kicked me out of your wedding. <laughs> uh, but I'm not, because I'll tell you right now, I'm feeling this music. I, uh, I got a ray of euphoria on me. I feel like uh, every inch of my body's being kissed by angels. Yes. Oh, God, I feel the music. Are you feeling it, Dave? I'm, I'm, I am feeling the music, not as much as you. Uh, Tony, put that down. No, uh, you look. Uh, are you really that thirsty? That that water bottle is in the trash. There's a there's a cigarette in it, Tony. Do not drink that. Now, Sorry, I understand. I, sucking on this pacifier necklace makes me parched. <laughs> yes, this is very interesting. Look for you. Um, does uh. Does, has, has Lorraine seen you lately in this getup of yours? I mean, those pants, it's, you look like you're part of the Sugar Hill Gang. Well, listen, I was working on my uh, producing the new album by John Squire from the Stone Roses. He's got this band called the Seahorses. Comes out later this year, and he said, hey, listen, travel up the coast, go to Sacramento. Giga Beats is the place to be if you want to check out the rave culture in America. So that's, that's what I'm doing, buddy. That's why I'm here. Yes, and while you're here dressed like this, really taking it in, I've decided, Tony, I mean, this sound, let's listen to it for a second, hold on. Yes, those beats, those beats are what's going to be on my next album. This is the way of the future, Tony. The, the beats, the electric warbles, the, uh, you know, Omicron, the Nomad Soul. It is coming soon. And this is the sound of Omicron, the Nomad Soul. It's as if we're living inside of Omicron, the Nomad Soul. This is fantastic. I think, Tony, my next album, I'm going to harness this. I am going to take whatever this space music is, these electronic beats, and bring them down to Earth. With us, the Earthlings. I, I've done it again, haven't I? Uh, you're, I think you've, uh, you're chewing through your pacifier. T Tony, you're wearing a pacifier. Uh, yeah, I just, just, I got this energy inside me right now. It's just, I, I, I can't stop. I, or maybe I've got lockjaw. I don't know. But <laughs> listen, your album sounds awesome, and I want to be a part of it. I know, you know, you probably got a producer lined up. But maybe if you could just like, I could tour with you and just dance on stage. I could just dance like this. Look, look, I do this on stage. That'd be my, that'd be my role. You know, Tony and Dave back together again. <laughs> but no, if you, you know, honestly, if we do need someone to um, give us a back rub or a, a hand massage, it looks like you're pretty good at that right now. What, what do you say? I would kill to give a hand massage or get one. <laughs> uh, All right, well, great. right down there. Right down there, it looks like they managed to keep one of the uh, the the hot dog uh, tents open from the California State Fair. Why don't you go down there and see if they'll maybe feed you? Because I think you need to eat something, Tony, or you're going to uh, implode. 
Alright, alright, Dave, let me get you something too. I mean, hey, you just offered me a job. I, I, I that's mending, that's, that's mending, uh, that's mending some wounds right there. Let me go get you a hot dog. You gonna be here when I get back? Yeah, you get me the, the best California hot dog Sacramento has to offer at 3 a.m. at Cal Expo. And I'll let you rub our hands when we record Earthling and we'll see where it goes. All right, I'll see you. I'll be back. I'll see you in five minutes. I'm sure we'll be here. Dave, I'm back. Where'd you go? Dave! Dave, you left. No! album out in 1997 um i didn't buy it at the time i think mark had it on cassette didn't you have this no on cassette, i had this mark? on cd and you know what this was my very first bowie album um i asked for it for christmas the year of 1997 because of i'm afraid of americans which eventually was released as a single uh, me thinking that the nine inch nails version uh was also going to be included on the record and uh it wasn't eventually that was released as its own separate single with uh and with i don't know six or seven different remixes so this is my first bowie album and i remember putting this in the accident machine in the walkman that had a cassette adapter and that's how we would listen to oh, it yes. and uh you know when we heard the first couple opening things of little wonder we were like uh oh <laughs> <laughs> interesting yeah i mean we were getting into bowie at the time like i famously famously <laughs> like i've talked about uh, <laughs> the, you know in our in our archives like i've talked about before many times we were listening to ziggy stardust and the, the live ziggy stardust album that was you know that we were starting to dip our toe into bowie land and the uh, mark's first purchase is this album and it was not what we were expecting um and mark and i we were man we just fucking we watched if you could have a babysitter as a teenager, uh, M2 was our babysitter. So whatever M2 was showing, we were on the cusp of uh, hip music. So we, we we saw a lot of this electronic stuff. And um, I just don't know if it was at, when I was a teenager what I was expecting from David Bowie. But I did sure love I'm Afraid of Americans. And later they released, it's on every version of the album now if you buy it, the, the Trent Reznor version. They, uh, they got their act together and realized that's what the people wanted to hear. I, uh... So I, I, Outside was the first uh, Bowie album I bought, and um, this came out, and I had just moved back to California, so Greg Walgas was nice. He recorded it all on tape for me. He bought the CD, Earthling. He recorded it all on tape for me and then mailed it to me. Um, nice guy. And uh, friend of the show, we talk about him often. And anyways, so I, and I think I was just primed for this record because I, I was listening to some of that, that Aphex Twin and drum and bass stuff anyways, so... Um, I was like, all right, this is good. This is good stuff. And then, you know, at some point before 1998, that tape went missing and I hadn't really dug in until, until recently. So, but yeah, it, like I said, it fell on kind ears as far as I was concerned back then. But, um, 
still not chew into this album as, as much until now. Mark, what were the critics saying when this came so, out? So it was kind of a mixed bag. Um, Chicago Tribune only really gave it two and a half stars. Uh, Entertainment Weekly, though, did like it, gave it an A. Enemy gave it a six out of 10. Uh, Pitchfork gave it an eight out of 10, which I'm not too surprised uh, given that uh, Pitchfork tends to like a little bit more creative stuff. And just looking at some of Bowie's previous works, they could appreciate that he was trying to change with the times. Rolling Stone only gave it three and a half. Uh, Spin gave it a six out of 10. And of course, we get the uh, Rolling Stone gave it his best since the 1980s Scary Monsters. Someone has to say it. <laughs> I think I think David himself said it for this one um, as well. I, I, I it's amazing. Uh, you know, when when we're all set said and done here with uh, this phase, before we go into the uh, season three Leonard Skinner, um, <laughs> you know. We can we're gonna, we might make a couple of surprises together. One of them is yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna cobble together a a, a five minute uh, fo- a, a, a audio album of all the times we said that somebody said that David Bowie's new album was gonna be the next Scary Monsters because uh, <laughs> my God, it happens enough. Now speaking of Rolling Stone, I want to take a moment to plug a podcast I've been enjoying immensely called uh, Rivals and. Uh, uh, Steve Hyden, who's a writer for Rolling Stone, and a y- another young gentleman, they get together and they just talk about the great rock rivalries. You've got your Lennon and McCartney, you've got your uh, uh, Fleetwood Mac one, you've got a uh, Axl Rose versus the journalism uh, industry, that's a great one. You've got Roger Waters versus David Gilmour, you've got Billy Corgan versus Pavement. Um, yeah, this this podcast is catnip for me, and I think a lot of our listeners would like it. So rivals covers rock or just music rivalries uh, very well done check it out well let's uh shall we uh dive into this start out with track one well before we do that i i wanted to know if uh you guys were familiar with that pay-per-view event that happened this year where bowie um has a pretty monumental part of the calendar where he turned 50 um do you guys have any background on that or I've watched a lot of the um, performances from that night. So uh, that performance, uh, which I remember at the time it being an event, um, I didn't pay for it, obviously, because I was still living at home and my parents would have been pretty upset if I was buying anything on pay-per-view. But that was the night that Bowie turned 50 and, uh, you know, he had uh, quite a star-studded cast that came and joined him. Um, and apparently, uh, Robert Smith from the cure, this is where he actually met Reeves, uh, Gabriel's or Gabrell's or however you pronounce it. Um, and Reeves eventually went on to, uh, be a full-time member of the cure. And my God, have we been pronouncing his name? I have no idea. I mean, honestly, I haven't looked it up. I think it's (laughs) Gabrell's, but Gabriel's whatever. Um, Anyhow, uh, Reeves is on that one track that we all seem to enjoy is wrong number. Um, and then he became a full-time member in, I think, 2012. 
I did not know. I knew he joined the Cure. Yeah. We talked about that. I didn't know he was on Wrong That's Number. A, he it's plays lead song. guitar on that, and he apparently yeah. was also on the Orgasmos soundtrack with uh, Jason Cooper, the drummer for the Cure at the time, and also <laughs> uh, Robert Smith. Um, but yeah, that uh, that event apparently had Reeves' next chapter written in there. That's that interesting. Event, that event has the the awesome two songs with Robert Smith, uh, Quicksand, and uh, I don't remember the other one. And then it's got uh, Sonic Youth yeah, joining um, the Afraid of Americans. Yeah, Reeves' uh, guitar really playing. Cool group of people. His, his guitar playing is, um, I actually think it suits the Cure better than it suits Bowie. Not all of his schizophrenic, like when he goes into hyper, let me see how many uh, tweaks and gizzos and sounds I can jam into this 20, 20 seconds of music mode. That's not the cure. But a lot of times he does do a lot of, um, I don't know, ambient sound washes. Uh, you'll find more of that on hours, I think. I think that's right at home on the cure. So, yeah. There you go. Um, but in that same event, we had Duncan Jones, uh, Bowie's son. He was operating the camera, and Tim Pope, the director of the uh, star studded um, and critically acclaimed Crow City of Angels. <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> so yeah, but but let's do it. Let's go track by track. I just wanted to know if you guys had uh, uh, read about or heard about that uh, pay per view event. It's all over YouTube, and I would recommend checking it out. There's there's some cool stuff. Excellent. All right, little wonder. what it is as soon as it begins um you have a breakbeat and actually this is one of the few occasions where they actually used a sample breakbeat if you remember back in our our uh five-year gap episode joe Vieira mentioned the song amen brother by the winstons that drum beat has been used for pretty much every breakbeat since since hip-hop was invented um and it's they use it in this song as well and it's that ding, ding, it's uh, so simple, but uh, a lot of it does, a lot of times when you hear that, it is the sample of this, this Winston's instrumental beat. So that's on there. Um, you definitely get the chunky, chopped and screwed Reeves guitar. Uh, you get a vocal sample from Steely Dan's live Boda Stifa. Boda Stifa. Yeah. Boda Stifa. Yeah. yeah there you, you get that in there. Um and uh, and yeah, it's 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 drum and bass. It's six minutes long. Um, the uh, the verses are like high octane, but Bowie's singing it with a little bit of sen sentiment in his voice. Um, and then it cuts when they get to the chorus and a few songs on this. 
I think it works really well when they go from the chopped up drum and bass to like the full band sound. And this one, the chorus is, you know, so far away and it just is swooping and it, it's, 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 you, one could even call it a Bono moment. just uh just yelling for the rafters and the whole band in and then the band drops out and it's back to chop and screw drum and bass music for six more minutes um the lyrics are uh nonsense on the song um pretty much it was an exercise bowie wanted to write a song where he used and mark i hope your disney ears are wiggling right now he wanted to write a song where he mentions all of the seven dwarves i caught it song. i caught it <laughs> and he gets to all of them and then he has more time so he makes up a few like stinky and scrummy and anyways uh song itself really i mean it's not about it could i mean it, it, you could look at it that he's kind of looking fondly on you know oh i was so adorable in my past look at me uh that's kind of a way it's been interpreted that he's he's kind of talking about himself and looking at himself over time for this song um and uh, I've got my opinions on this song, but uh, what do you what do you guys think? At first, I uh, like I had kind of alluded to earlier. I I didn't really care for it when I was a young teen. I thought it was an old man trying to uh, be hip and young. How you doing, fellow kids? Uh, but in my more uh, experienced listenings going forward, and uh, just kind of appreciating what Bowie was all about. Um, you're right. I do come for those choruses. Um, it's fantastic. Um, I mean, it's not a perfect song by any means, but over the years, it has certainly grown on me uh, pretty pretty exponentially. I, I, I certainly think it's a highlight of this record, and for whatever reason, whenever I think of Earthling, I tend to think of this song first. Over I'm Afraid of Americans and even my favorite song off of this, which we'll talk about later. Um, but uh, it, it, it seems to do a very good job of uh, addressing what this album is going to be all about. Um, so I'll give it that. I mean, it's, it's certainly not one of his shining gems, but I do give it a pass because of those choruses, man. They're they're strong. Um, his vocal delivery is fantastic, and even though looking back now, it does sound dated um, in terms of just that late '90s sound. But it's fine. I think it's okay. I think it's it's yeah. uh, b behind all of the uh, the whiz bang production that he's really trying to throw at you. Um, you know, and this is also the era of Bowie where he was obsessed with the internet and computers and i think that is also just bleeding into his sound and uh i'm okay with it looking back but at the time I, I was not a fan but i've i've grown to appreciate it sorry i got a little lyric clip here for you stinky weather fat shaky hands dopey morning doc grumpy gnomes that's a little, little verse <laughs> excerpt right there yep. yeah yeah, I, this one broke my brain trying to uh, analyze it, so I just kind of went with it because it's it's fun. 
Uh, Steve, what do you think? Well, uh, lyrically, I mean, what do you think, Eric? The Little Wonder, is it, is it kind of a, you know, is the, is, uh, uh, isn't there some kind of element of like, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves going on here or something? That's what I said. Is he, he, he okay. name checks all the dwarves in the, in the, in the verses, but he's not telling the story of, of, of Snow White. He just, he just had an exercise where he wanted to mention the dwarves' names in whatever lyrics he was writing. So, okay. But if you, if you found a connection to the actual story, I don't only, think there's a story. I don't think there's a story on this album. Um, oh, no. You know, yeah, this song is good. Um, actually, I think it's, it's great despite its shortcomings. Um, I do think that right from the start, the, the, the Amen breakbeat thing, it's just too predictable for what they're going to do. When you say you're going to put out, this is, this is my, you know, I'm really, we're really in with the electronica times. And then that's what you open with. It's just so on the nose. Um, it just timestamps it too hard for me. But on this track, when it kicks into the choruses, that's, you know, that like Mark, you both said, those choruses, they write the ship for this song big time. Uh, two times. I think uh, the, the first time the chorus kicks in, uh, Gillian Dorsey's bass line kind of, you know, slides down to it. And then just like the song bursts open with the, uh, uh, it's the so far away. Isn't that the chorus on this yeah. one? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really good. Oh, yeah. And, um, much more organic sounding and very soaring. And I like that. Um, I, I would say there's an argument that the song's too long It's six minutes. You could be cut down, but I would say that kind of goes against their mission statement on the album. They wanted to make, they wanted to, there to be a club purpose for some of these songs. They didn't just want to make rock songs that had a drum and bass background. They wanted to actually make drum and bass songs, which is going to mean extended instrumentals. So, and that's and in, 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 yeah, in the way where I'm coming from it, I'd rather hear the rock songs, but, and that's why on this track, the choruses, which are more rock based specifically, uh, the last time you get the chorus, they throw in, uh, they, 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 they kick in a, a drum beat. That's way more organic that takes out the rest of the song. It even has some, uh, organic drum fills which I think does, uh, does the song a lot of justice. Um, yeah, but that chorus is so epic and soaring. I love it. And he sounds very invested in it. I think that uh, this album is something they really believed in when they were making it. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I think, and this will be a theme for this album for me, is I think that underneath some of the, 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 the gadgetry, there's a really great song here. Um, one gadget that I cannot figure out is the use of a uh, it, it's break time at the old warehouse uh, <laughs> horn. Oh yeah! Oh man! On the uh, on the seven months seven months in America live album, when that happens, he goes all aboard. All aboard. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah. pretty yeah. interesting use. That, that that's also me. very on the nose. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. That reminded me, um, back in the aughts, uh, Jason Hellowell, may he rest in power, and I worked at a warehouse together. And every day at three, we had our last break, and we would always, <laughs> we would take the uh, the megaphone, like the 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 intercom for the entire warehouse, and we would we would start playing Europe's The Final Countdown over it. Uh, we would do that to announce the the last break of the day for years on end. So as always. Whenever I think of uh, bells and whistles for breaks, that reminds me That's of the great. final countdown. Oh, nice. 
But uh, yep, yeah, it's a pretty good song there, but it does go on too long. My goodness. Um, I didn't have time to take a look at the video. Uh, directed by Floria Sigismondi, who also directed the Beautiful People Marilyn Manson video. Did either of you do that? Yes, it, yes, yes. It's very much in line. It's, you know, there's like a dark, grimy filter over the camera. There's a lot of like fisheye lens. Um, Bowie's creeping around this uh, this kind of cathedral looking thing as he sings. Um, it definitely is. It, it, it's, it's in Marilyn Manson ilk for sure. Um, there's actually, I actually am going to quote the pushing ahead the dame here. And uh, because I just love this line. Um, Tits and explosions, he crows. Half of his band looks like stepdads, but his bass player looks like a hired assassin. <laughs> <laughs> I love that description. That's great. But yeah, the, the, the videos here, it's a shortened version. There's an edit, drops it down to under four minutes. So maybe that's that. Maybe that's the one for you, Steve. But uh but yeah, that's the, that's the video. Uh, two things. Uh, Eric, did you watch all the videos for this album? Yes. Good. We'll lean on you. And um, we need to get the pushing the head, the Dame guy on the, on the podcast. I think oh, we, yeah. we, 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 we've we, uh, vultured his, his hard work enough. I think he, we got to give him a proper shout out for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, little wonder. Yeah. So d- just, just really quick in passing. Um, shitload of remixes for the song um uh junior vasquez who was one of the top djs that was doing drum and bass and jungle at the time did like three remixes of this song (laughs) the ambient version the 4-4 version the club dub um there, I mean, it's it's very polished drum and bass um, stuff. Probably at the time, I thought sounded a little too squeaky clean. Um, not crazy about it. There's a Danny Saber remix. Danny Saber uh, produced um, like Hollywood and a bunch of Marilyn Manson stuff. He uh, produced Blizzard of Oz and uh, U2's "Staring at the Sun" uh, remix. Um, And so he did a remix called the Danny Saber mix for Little Wonder. It's a little bit better. It has an added live cello player on it. And they actually use that in the film, uh, the Val Kilmer movie, The Saint. So that remix is probably the best out of the Little Wonder ones, but um, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. Yeah. I, one thing I wanted a note before we move on is on this album. One thing I I kind of found was uh, if you were to remove uh, outside the trajectory of black tie, white noise, and booty of suburbia. Buddha of Suburbia. Somehow this feels like it could have been the next album after those two. Um, I attribute a lot of that to the plasticness of the production on, on this album for me. Uh, like little wonder really seems like that. could be the same David Bowie that made a jump. They say the next, like, you know, two, two songs later, I feel, um, yeah, just, no, that's, that's spot on. And that, that was the last one he was taking, 
a lot from early 90s UK electronic music, which was yeah. not more like acid jazz and stuff like that. But uh, Exactly. Yeah, that's so a, that's just, a fair point for sure. It seems, it seems that there's a, a through line there. All right, next track. What do you got, Eric? Looking for satellites. Nowhere, shampoo, TV, come back, boy zone, swim tie, showdown, can't stop. satellites mark you gotta love this song baby it's a list it's a list song he's got a list for you it's all about consumer culture um it, uh, in an interview in 97 bowie said um that he's just it's just shopping it's a shopping list of words that he can he uh, associates with consumer culture um prop up the idea that your spiritual search between orthodox religion and technological age and um you kind of vacillate between the two um, and I like this. Uh, it's kind of like you're asking yourself, who is God? Shall we kill him so that we can re- reinvent him for our own purposes? That's apparently what the song is about. Um, and it does start out with that. It starts out with a list. Nowhere, shampoo, TV, combat. Um, boy zone. Boy zone. <laughs> which was, uh, <laughs> that was a UK boy, boy band at the time, correct? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, and uh, it gets a little bit more interesting as it goes on. Where do we go to now? There's nothing in our eyes. As lonely as the moon, misty and far away. He gets a little bit more, little dig, dig, digs a little deeper. Um, in a way, you could look at this as some sort of uh, cousin to T- TVC15, just, um, uh, just as far as like some sort of hypnosis coming from a TV that's kind of instilling these thoughts. Um, it's... Uh, it's it's pretty down tempo as far as this goes, um, but it's still using a lot of uh, cut and pasted drum drum loops. Um, Reeves is just bleeping and blooping all over his guitar shreds. He's just pinwheel guitaring uh, in a lot of this song. Um, if you want to know what Reeves sounds like, this is probably one of the better examples on the album. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 pleasant enough. I don't I find it one of the le- lesser engaging songs on it, but. Um, Hey, Mark, it's got a list. It does have a list. Um, I like my lists not as repetitive, or maybe because Eraser, you know, by Nine Inch Nails is definitely another list, and that's the quintessential list song. Um, but this one, I think because the uh, the accompanying music, it sounds like what you would hear at like a target or something like that, as you're just shopping and putting things into the old, um, uh, shopping cart. And that might be intentional because of what the message is saying. But the only thing that really, um, catches my interest is when he has these little swings of how he sings satellite and everything else though, is just too damn repetitive. That goes on for too damn long. Um, so I'm not a huge fan of this particular track. That's yeah, fair. this this feels uh, this is a strange track for a number two. I mean, we've all talked about how on an album you want to take it down a notch, but you don't you don't want to take it down this much, in my opinion. Um, 
it's it's kind of disorienting. Yeah, Reeves, Gabrels, guitars are pinwheeling all over. Um, I kind of like. freak out towards the end but it just does not do a lot for me i could imagine blur doing a better version of this song i feel that blur could have made this song and given it more of a hook sure um sure and it, it definitely could have been a blur song um yeah there's a kind of a weird misstep uh for a track two um you know they, they they quickly write things, I believe, but yeah, I don't have much to say about this track besides it's a it's a it's a it's a watch a check your watch track. That's what it is. There you go. All right, that next song is Battle for Britain, the letter. So um, this song uh, framed a lot like Little Wonder. It's got um, it's a little bit more upbeat. It's got the uh, the it's got your drum and bass thing. Uh, this definitely doesn't sound like a sample though. This is this is their their drummer playing live and then chopping up what he does. Um, very simple song, but the hooks just dig in for me. Um, which is the uh, don't let my letter get you down down. Um, uh, so Garson, Mike Garson shines on this track and you get some, uh, Mike Garson plinking and fluking going on, 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 on his piano. And you know what? It makes sense. He fits like skittery music. And, uh, and you can tell he was having a blast on this song. Um, in an interview, uh, Bowie said, this is the am I or am I not British? I haven't lived in British since 1974, but I love the place and I keep going back. And, um, you know, that's, maybe I'm just an outsider. I can't really see the connection to the lyrics too much. There's a little bit, uh, I always think uh, when I was reading it, I, I couldn't help but think, I don't know if you guys watch uh, John Oliver as religiously as I do, but he always has a running joke on his show about how Brits are never allowed to express their actual emotions. <laughs> and that's, that's how you're supposed to live in, in, in the UK. Uh, and, uh, and so when I read the lyrics like, uh, my, my, the time do fly when it's another pair of hands and a loser I will be for I've never been a winner in my life. I got a, I got used to stressing pain. I use sucker pills to pity the self. Oh, it's the animal in me, but I'd rather be a beggar man on the shelf. Um, just kind of, would rather you know use these other things instead of dealing with the pain the pills and that kind of stuff um uh reliance on substance because you couldn't face the emotions for what they were um which i know you know is a has been considered a british a, a british problem <laughs> or at least if you listen to john oliver another expatriate from uh from britain um but uh yeah anyways that's uh song definitely is an attention grabber i like the i like the the clip to this song and the pace. And, uh, that's, that's my two cents. What do you guys think? 
Yeah, I uh, I think this is actually a great song. I mean, it was so good they brought it back for the reality tour, um, years later, and it, it sounds. If you were to take away all of the electronica aspects of it, I feel like it sounds like early Bowie to an extent. I think the vocal delivery on the chorus definitely could have been from, uh, uh, you know, the space oddity to, you know, his folk, his psych folk days, if you will. Um, and I, and I, I think that the, the vocal delivery of the bridge, uh, before the chorus, the, you know, the, it's the rain before the storm, all uh, the, the, those lyrical sections, he delivers those with a very, uh, maybe, early nineties Radiohead or, or maybe even like Oasis type. I'm not, you know, there's something very British to that song. Uh, he knew that battle for Britain, the letter, he, he seemed to channel some of his uh, British contemporaries and even some people that might be influenced by him with this vocal delivery in it. And I think it's a great track. Uh, it does. I do get kind of thrown off again when it starts off with the, the skittery techno drums, but it quickly gets into more of an organic mode and levels out. Um, and, and when the, when the the vocals hit for the first time, I'm already fully engaged with it. Um, I think the, the vocal overlays are really good. And, uh, the, I, I really am just overall impressed with this track. Um, it's, it is very heavy on the Mike Garson in a good way. I think that, like you said, Eric, his piano solo is pretty awesome. And it doesn't totally pay attention to itself. It manages to fit in between the raindrops of the song perfectly. And, um, you know, Reeves' guitar squelches, they do sound like they belong in the video game Wipeout, but uh, they work with this track despite the fact that it does all kind of... Everything put together, I like, but I do think it sounds a little... um, The production's a little like... I don't know. Uh, it sounds like a bad MP3 at times. Um, I don't know if that was on purpose, but the songwriting, the song craft, the vocals, the musicianship, the rising action, the, the guitar atmospherics overall, I really do like this song. And, and you know, it, it's weird. This track, if you were to strip away a lot of the bells and whistles, this song actually, to me sounds like it could have been a, uh, a mid nineties Ozzy Osbourne song, believe it or not. Ozzy has those strange songs that are halfway in between ballads and rock songs. And you listen to that, you know, don't you let my letter bring me down part or, uh, don't let my letter bring you down. I can imagine Ozzy Osbourne singing that. Uh, I so when they play it live on like reality, is that kind of more of what you're thinking of the, what the, what the strengths of the song are when it, when it's kind of more of a live band thing, as opposed to the, Bells and whistles of the production studio. Yes, yes, I do. But even the version on the album, I like quite a bit the way it already is. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like this track. It's nice. on the upper end for me. Yeah, Mark. So this is a challenging song. I, I don't think at first blush uh, I, I enjoyed it. I think it was just one of those things that it was just washed over me. I didn't want to instantly skip it but it wasn't anything that i would ever like seek out but after kind of listening to it a couple times and um kind of dissecting it a little bit i mean it's 
Mark Plotty, the one of the producers, apparently is the one who uh, essentially masterminded this whole kind of the sound. Uh, he apparently was trying to create a new genre called jazz jungle, and you hear that with certainly Mike Garson um, doing his keyboard on the cat or cat on the keyboard routine. Um, but the three things that really pops out to me, you know, yes, of course, Bowie delivers a really good vocal performance. Gail Ann Dorsey has a really great bass line that's just kind of working in the mix. Zach Alford on drums, uh, he definitely uh, is really pushing the percussion forward. Um, but the one thing that I don't really think adds a lot to the mix is Reeves' guitar playing. It's just like... <laughs> and that's it. And so while the other people are, are essentially really just throwing some ingredients into the mix and he's just kind of putting a little too much salt on it. And uh, I, I think that's why it's not instantly catchy is because his guitar sound is so high up in the mix and it is very distracting. Um, but I do agree with the song structure, and if you kind of strip away some of the modern elements that uh, is in the soup, um, that it does kind of adhere back to kind of that way that Bowie constructed lyrics. And it is very interesting. I do absolutely, now that Steve says it, about the whole Ozzy, like I could see this being on one of his albums that probably came out around this time, Osmosis. Uh, exactly. Yeah, if you would... If you were to slow it down a step, that chorus sounds like a total Ozzy Osbourne. Number. Sure, I see it. Um, but, you know, obviously not the same sort of musical structure that Bowie brought into here. So it's not one of my favorites on the record, but it's certainly an improvement over Looking for Satellites. Um, and I, I just scratch my head a little bit about, like, what role does Reeves really have here? Because, I mean, with Bowie having always this really great side piece of Mick Ronson, Carlos Alomar, and now Reeves is just adding these just blurps, blasts of just dissonant guitar. It's just a different sort of relationship, I would have to say. Yeah, yeah. you see, the, the the thing with Reeves that I I I struggle with as a guitar player is I can't remember him ever coming up with anything that knocked me on my ass guitar wise. Sure. When I think of him, I think of just a guy that tried to do a bunch of stuff, almost like, uh, you know, uh, like if a, uh, an IT tech at, at work that keeps telling you about all these programs you can buy and possibilities to make this, that, and the other thing work better. But at the end of the day, he just can't keep it. So your laptop quits crashing. And I'm like, okay, guy, Yes, I understand of all the possibilities out there, but at the end of the day, just do your job. <laughs> and that's um Yeah. With Reeves, I kind of feel like he loses the he's just so he's so fascinated with just being like, Yeah, you know, me and David, we were way ahead of the curve. We are on the cutting edge. We are doing all of these amazing things with program X. And I'm just like, but yeah, the guy, the guitar. I just like the guitar is not doing much for us here. Yeah. What I, what I'm gonna be interested to see is, you know, I feel like in my in my head i'm pretty familiar with the album outside and he plays on that and while i don't necessarily remember any like smoking riffs or anything i also don't remember him being kind of offensively <laughs> offensively just blatting like a trumpet player on a guitar 
um, on that album. So I'll be curious to see. I, I It's funny. Um, one of the interview snippets with David Bowie, he said, we made outside. Brian Eno was really in charge of production and he wouldn't let us mess around with Reeves ideas for like chopping up his guitar and, 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 and uh, pumping it through all these pedals. Like Brian Eno wouldn't let us really play with that idea. So this is the album we really wanted to explore that. So um, maybe that's well, maybe why that's, I can't maybe, remember it. Maybe that's because Brian was doing his job and being a good producer <laughs> and saying, no guitar player, play the guitar. And uh, you, you leave, you leave all the electronic wizardry to me. Thank you very much. So yeah. What all do right, we got well, next? What's that? Next is seven years in today. song it's somber but it has a sense of humor it's low um low tempo it is a almost a trip-hop song in uh its beat um in some way if there was one song on here inspired by a say like portishead it would be the background music to this particular song not so much the singing um but the background music it's got a groove to it um the whole band seems like they're contributing on this song What's funny about how it was made was um, Mark Plotty and and Gavrils made an early version of it. Bowie didn't really feel it, and they but they didn't. They, he told him to dump it, to throw it out. It wasn't working, and they just kept tweaking it. They brought in Gail Ann Dorsey and they brought the drummer uh, Zach and Zachary in, and they just kept messing with it until they got something that Bowie liked. And so they they obviously liked the groove, and there is an undeniable groove to the song. Um, it's got, yeah, like I said, it's got a low tempo, down tempo, um, kind of slow down breakbeat, and uh, and then uh, the bass line's fantastic, playing off, playing off like an organ line that maybe you know Mike Garson or Mark Piotti was playing. I don't know. Um, the song itself is about, it's basically Bowie saying like, I've long, ever since I was a teenager, I've kind of flirted with Buddhism. I love what it stands for. I love that it's spirituality but not you know following a religious doctrine it's more about you know being present in the world and not so much about you know these old morality stories um but he felt guilty he was quiet about it i mean listen this was the late 90s beastie boys did the concert for tibet the whole uh tibetan freedom situation was very much in the news they made like three movies about it um and Bowie, as he's long cared for that religion and spent time there and said nothing. And he felt guilty. So this was his, his attempt to try to just shed some light on it. The lyrics are pretty dour. Um, you know, it starts with, are you okay? You've been shot in the head. I'm holding your brains, the old woman said. 
is a, a monk is shot in the street as Chinese helicopters fly overhead. They paint the picture and then they, and then um, he, he, he folds a little dark comedy into the song as it goes on. But um, that's what it is trying to give you a pretty sober look at, at, at the violence that was atrocities that were happening over there. Um, I gotta be honest, the groove gets me on this song. Um, it's got a good melody and uh, the band knows what they're doing. Uh, that all kind of melds pretty well. And that's my opinion of, of this one. Yeah, I mean, it, it starts off with a kind of like a nightclubbing closer type beat to sure it. Sure does. Yes, I, I thought the same thing. Yes, that that yeah. snare sound. It, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it has it has it has that going on for it. Um, the track was actually almost left off the album. Uh, it it started okay, so we just got done with you know giving Ga- G- Reeves Gabrels the uh, the business. He actually was the one that started uh, writing this track. Uh, it was called Brussels and Bowie actually kind of told him, he said, dump it, get rid of this. <laughs> uh, whatever, whatever early version of it, uh, it was not doing it for Bowie and uh, Reeves thought there was something about it. So he reworked it and reworked it and reworked it. And uh, later uh, they, whatever he reworked it into David Bowie said, Hey, we can, we can do something with this. And uh, it became David Bowie's almost his favorite song in the album. He claims, um, I think it's a good song. I, I, this one, uh, it, it, it might, I, I might, it might be my favorite song in the album. I'm not sure. Um, it's a, it's got, it's just, it's got that slow dirge to it. It's got kind of like these Ray Manzarek keyboards going on that are, that Mike Garson's doing. They kind of lurk in the background and actually hold the whole song together for me. Um, I like the, 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 the vocal effect on Bo on Bowie's verses are very, um, in the mid nineties, like you'd have a, a Tom York or, or, or filter would, would use this vocal effect where it sounds like somebody was calling on a telephone. I like that on the verses on this track. Um, much like little wonder, it has moments where the band really barges in and the song comes alive and organic. Um, that would be, you know, the where this kicks in and it. What's the the main lyric on this one, I, uh, Eric? The, I praise to you. Nothing ever goes away. Okay, the, the, yeah, that part. The band comes in. He goes, "I praise to you." I really feel like the rising action all of a sudden just takes a jump, and gets very more organic. Uh, the vocals and the choruses also that I praise to you sound very uh, urgent to me, and the, the I, I again I don't think that Bowie was. Uh, phoning it in at all in this record, despite the fact that they used a sound effect like a telephone on this track. But literally, it doesn't sound like they're phoning it in at all. He sounds really engaged as far as some of these albums in the second half of his career go to me. Um, and then back to Reeves on this track, I do think the guitar riff is pretty good. That da 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 that guitar riff, I'll give him that. I think it sounds pretty well. It locks in with the bass line, pretty good. And um, Gail Ann Dorsey does some amazing backup vocal work on this track. I think all together, seven years in Tibet's a pretty good one. Oh yeah. So uh, we've landed on my favorite song on the album. I'll go ahead and say it. Um, I think that's uh, really strong in terms of uh, just the song structure. I, I do like the sort of uh, to that Radiohead type Pixies, the quiet, to the loud, to the back, to the quiet mm-hmm. uh, song structure. I think that 
they do it effectively here. Uh, certainly with the, I praise to you, nothing ever goes away. That, those parts are just fantastic. The the big ass wall of sound that you get with the guitars and the keyboards uh, with that kind of uh, droning kind of farfisa organ solo towards the middle. And then um, it just kind of ends with Mike Garson just sitting on the key. Uh, I, I do really like it. It's got some saxophones. Um, I think there's a video for this where it looks like just a live performance. That's also good. You see Bowie, I think, even pull out the old saxophone, just blowing it around. Um, and uh, I, I didn't re- rewatch the video. I just I know it's ingrained in my head with him and Gail doing most of the vocal work. Um, but this is it's a really good song. It really highlights the the, the band playing all together yeah and um i don't know this is it just does it for me we're three for three i I don't know if it's my favorite song but it is it's a great song and yeah mark did you pick up my rayman zarek comment i mean i'm really feeling the rayman zarek oh yeah sure absolutely i mean i wasn't scrolling twitter while both of you were talking so yes i did catch it who's Uh, rayman zarek he was the guitar player, or I'm sorry, he was the keyboard player for the Doors. Oh yeah, and that, that organ is unbeatable. Ex- oh. Exactly, it's very, yeah. very Doorsian. I wonder if that was uh, uh, Garson or or Plotty on that. Could have been, could have been Reeves. I don't know. It's Garson. Okay, yeah, it is fan- Garson. It's fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Like you said earlier, Eric, I'm glad that Garson had a big presence on this album because the glitchiness really does fit into his playing. Right. Um, he's always he, been, like we said, cats on the keyboard. But yeah, and, no computer. You can't compu- com- program a computer to what he does, though. So even yeah. though it works with it, it's obviously organic, which is not- no, it, no, it definitely is. And that's it, that's it's a match made in heaven. It's a yeah. it's a cyborg of some sort. Uh, that's great. Uh, Seven years in Tibet. That was another single off this album. And um, what is the next song? Next song is Dead Man let me dance away Now I'm wiser than dreams Let me fly, fly, fly While I'm touching tomorrow Um, Bowie loves to tell a story about the song where he was uh, in the mid 60s he was hanging out with Jimmy Page and uh, Jimmy Page taught was just messing around and did a riff and Bowie liked it and so Jimmy Page taught it to him and said hey you can have it take it so Bowie took that song and he used it on the song The Supermen and then revived it again and used the riff in Dead Man Walking now I did not listen to them side by side um, but I'll obviously do that edit, the, edit that in here on this episode did you guys compare and contrast the two? I come dancing on angels 
can we can find something there. This song uh, now, you know, see, this is this is interesting. See, I'll bring this up again later. He tells that story in the Seven Months in America CD, mm-hmm. and the version of this song on there I find far superior. We'll talk about that later. Maybe if you were to listen to that version, you can hear the uh, the Superman ties. But if it's buried in this version with all the rail light stuff that Mark's going to talk about, <laughs> I'm not hearing it. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if there's even a guitar riff in here to listen to. So if there, you know, I was talking about before the kind of techno that I got into at this era. I did like drum and bass. I thought it was a little bit more edgy. It had a little bit more noise and grime to it. And then there was house music and the house didn't really speak to me. And this is four on the floor house music in the background. Now there's a lot of other stuff going on um, to it. And, um, you know, I, uh, like I said, there's this guitar riff happening back there. And I will tell you right now, this, this song might have the best Gail Ann Dorsey bass licks in it. And she is all over that, the fretboard in this song. She's doing a great job. Um, she has great uh, backup vocals on this song too. She does. She does. Um, but there's something about how it's all put together. I do feel like this is one of the more dated sounding songs or, you know, a little on the cheesy side. Um, he initially wanted to write it. Uh, he, he wanted to find some way to um, uh, make an ode to, well, according to Pushing Head the Dame, he was, he was making an ode to Susan Sarandon, his former co-star from The Hunger. And she had just made a movie called Dead Man Walking. And so he thought that, oh, he found inspiration in that. But the song itself doesn't have anything to do with that movie. Um, this song is actually inspired by Neil Young. And he had, um, I guess, been to a show and saw Neil Young playing and just saw these the audience just turn, during this instrumental breakdown, just turn tribal. And I mean, Neil Young himself looks like a caveman. So <laughs> he, yeah. he, he, they kind of built this around like when you're getting older and, um, there are just some people that age just kind of like they are, they're like vampires. They are given life by this adoring audience that is, that is moved spiritually by your music. And he felt that way when he saw Neil Young performing. Um, and that's what this song. That's, all right. Hold on. I'm going to pull up. the. I'm going to pull up the exact quote. Uh, <laughs> uh, from David Bowie. I went over to do a Neil Young benefit for the bridge school. And watching Neil Young and Crazy Horse working on stage was really special. There's something sage-like about Young, this grand old man of American rock, a pioneer loaded with integrity and disarmingly charming as a man. And watching him work with these, let's call them older men, there was a sense of grace and dignity about what they were doing and also an incredible verve and energy. It was very moving. So, Eric, I just want to kind of keep you honest here that you made it sound like uh, he said that Neil Young was an energy vampire caveman that sucked off the blood of people rocking out. Well, I was going off the lyrics. I, so knowing that it was inspired by Neil Young and then reading the lyrics, uh, there's not a demon in heaven or hell. Is it all just a human disguise as I walk down the aisle? Um, I don't know. There's just there's just stuff in there that that. I, I, yes, you're right. I am taking some liberties. Um, funny you brought up the Bridge Benefit concert as I was there. Um, as I've mentioned before. I had tickets with my high school friends to go see Les Claypool and the Holy Mackerel in San Francisco. And my parents got cold feet and did not let me go. And I had to give my ticket away. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was a wash. They did not want me going to San Francisco with these kids they've never met before. So to make it up to me, my dad took me to the bridge benefit concert like three weeks later. Um, 
to which I did get to see Neil Young live and Pearl Jam live and uh, uh, Patti Smith and Cowboy Junkies and 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 then and uh, Pete Townsend and Bowie were all there. It was great. It was great. And Bowie Bowie's um, set list was very small, uh, but he played Aladdin Sane. He played Gene Genie. He played a, some band called The Coasters. I'm a hog for you. He played "I Can't Read" by Tin Machine, and then he did "Man Who Sold the World" and "Heroes" and "Let's and Let's Dance," all all, all acoustic with Gail Ann Dorsey and Reeves out there. And so uh, I just felt like because it's the Neil Young inspired song, I should I should mention that it was a fun show. It was a fun show. I was happy. Uh, maybe in the long run, it's it was a better experience than Les Claypool and the Holy Mackerel. Maybe not. I I I yeah, you probably won out. If it was Primus, I would have been bummed, but. I mean, holy mackerel. Mark, did you go to that tour? I sure did, Steve. I sure did. I saw uh, Les Claypool and the Holy Mackerel play at the El Dorado Saloon in Sacramento. And not only did I see them, uh, but they had Merv uh, open up for them. Merv was also in the band. It was also uh, the bridge between when Tim Alexander left Primus and Brian Brain Mantia joined Primus. And that was the tour that they announced that Brain was going to be joining Primus. But also on top of that, I broke my growth plate in my foot, and I went to that concert in crutches. <laughs> Fucking nerd. Uh, but but also, to, uh, to further this Neil Young um, connection, let's not all forget that Neil Young did the score for the Johnny Depp starring... Jim Jarmusch directing Dead Man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's so, a that's a that might be a top fiver for Jarmusch for me. That's a good one. That's a good one. That is a good one. Well, back to the back to the movie Dead Man Walking. I find it interesting that he was thinking about Susan Strainer when he made this song. Uh, and he the movie Dead Man Walking did come out at the same time because this song could not be any further from that soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> it's a good soundtrack. It, it's got, what's it no, got? I think, I think we all might have it. I know at least Eric and I do. And it's very folky Americana, Dylan, Tom Waits, uh, Bruce, you know, the boss. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what oh, that's got that Tom Waits, uh, fall of Troy song. It's got, yeah, yeah it's, it, it, it couldn't be any, any further from what's going on here. No. Um, what do you guys think about the sound of this song after we went on our Neil Young tangent? Well, you know, I, I, I do like this song, but I have to, I have to work to like it. And that annoys me. Um, it starts out with the most wipeout Excel PlayStation one sound effects that, you know, that, that whole thing sure. that does not do anything for me at all. And, um, when the vocals kick in, I'm digging it. He's doing a little bit of this, like a ethereal kind of singing into the the darkness kind of thing, and it's got these tangerine dream keyboards, and the song is just begging to be a rave song with the whole "and I'm gone, gone, gone." <laughs> I mean, it's kind of it's we haven't talked about outside yet, but it's kind of a uh, it's a poor man's hollow space boy, in my opinion. What it's trying to achieve, it doesn't have the same force that that song has. That song is a guitar driven, just blaster. And I feel like both these songs try to have that same uh, propulsion to them. But this one doesn't get out of the gate too well because of the tools it's trying to use, which is, uh, I don't know, the 
PlayStation One production value. Um, but I do like Gail Ann Dorsey's uh, Diva Whales. I assume that's her. And Garson's piano, oddly enough, again, fits really well into this. And if you listen closely, Reeves Gabriel does have a little bit of fancy fret work. You got you to gotta look for it. Um, it's not bad. It's just very, it's the most, I, I think on this album, uh, right, right above Little Wonder, it's the most like, we're making an electronica album song out of all of them. And it just goes on forever. I, I don't, I, it's almost, it's like seven and a half minutes long. Um, all that said, I think I like it. There you go. I mean, it's not one of the shining gems off the record. There's no doubt about that. Um, and in my mind, uh, it, it does sound just too familiar to Madonna's Ray of Light. <laughs> I know that that came after, but for whatever reason, that being a bigger hit, I can't help but sing Madonna's vocals over this song. And I'm not a Madonna fan by any means, um, but it's just, it, it seems that it's, the music is tailor-made to be done by a pop star, even though David Bowie is a pop star by every definition, but I'm talking about someone that has a team writing their songs for them. And yeah. um, it's just, it's not something that I'm, I'm uh, too enthusiastic about. I do will have to admit that there are parts of the song that I do enjoy. Um, the, uh, everyone kind of gets a piece of it uh, towards the end. You know, Gail Ann Dorsey does have some excellent bass playing on this one. Mike Garson, again, has some really shines. At the very end of the song, he has this like Latin sounding melody that he's going and it doesn't really connect to anything that was going on in the song. Um, I kind of find interesting. Um, and also, it's worth noting that this album, for whatever reason, even though uh, U2's pop album came out, I think, a month separating it, uh, February, though this one came out in February, pop came out in March. Um, of 1997 and they came out with discotech and it pissed off all of their YouTube fans because they were embracing dance culture for whatever reason in my mind, because I'm a fan of both Bowie and U2, it's just, these are sister albums. I don't know what it is, but I think it was just the rise of kind of electronic dance culture that two artists were just really embracing it. And uh, we're re willing to lose some fans in the uh, in, in the equation. Um, even though Bowie had been really just challenging his fans more so up until this point, but it's interesting seeing someone in their kind of, I won't, I don't want to say a midlife crisis, but you could kind of say that they wanted to stay relevant. And that's kind of why I want to put earthling and pop kind of in that same, category but all said and done it's the song goes on too long and it's done better by younger people that are willing to make it sound not as polished so yeah i, uh... I mean this this song sounds like this this song is a uh, you know david at the time as we mentioned had a soul patch and also uh, frosted tips at this time and a dangly ear when you look at photo, when, 
Yeah. When you look at David Bowie photos from this era, he really looks like an old man trying to look young. He gets over it pretty quickly. Uh, uh, well, his appearance in hours is questionable as well. By the time reality rolls around, things are okay. But um, yeah, it's just, it's tough. You know, I, I seen a guy that has done so much and broke so much ground obviously try to latch on to what the young folk are doing. It kind of takes me out of it sometimes. And on this track, it, 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 it tends to do that to your U2 comment. Yeah, they did um come. They did do something similar, but I feel like U2 always had more of a sense of humor about such things like discotheque. You know, on, when you're listening to that track, they're kind of there. There's a tongue in cheek thing going on there. I oh, yeah. They're dressed up as the village people in the video. Yeah. I mean, ah. it's, now I'm not. Now there's many times where U2 is too deadly serious and it's almost detrimental. Sure. But um, I think Pop had a good sense of humor. Also, it's, it, it's I'm glad you brought them up because. Much like David Bowie, you know, I don't I feel like Earthling didn't come out of, and out of nowhere. Um, there were hints of this on Black Tie White Noise. And there were hints of the whole uh, a different type of electronic music on outside. But with you two, I mean, didn't uh, like Lemon and uh, what was that? Zoo? Europa came out before then and they were. Yeah. But that one was like the serious version of what they were trying to do on pop. And then on pop, they just decided to. Let, yeah, let's go ahead and come out of a giant lemon on stage. So, yeah, yeah but but. Musically, they were kind of already dabbling in uh, not just being a rock band. Sure, so. sure. Yeah. Uh, there's parallels there for both uh, of them. Mark Mark uh, suggested I check out Pop. Um, and I do. I see what you're saying, because they're, to a certain degree, it's like embracing dance music. There is a certain uh, consumer plastic kind of uh, pastiche to the album, even even if it's if both albums are deeper than that. Um, and, I, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed pop more than I thought I would. Um, this uh, song has many remixes, uh, three Moby remixes. Moby's back. Like a dead man. The, for, the Moby Mix 1 is the only one kind of worth your time. Uh, it's got some atmosphere to it. It's got those really good Moby synths uh, happening. Uh, the second mix sounds like a Black Tie White Noise remix, one of those acid jazz remixes. And the house mix is just, it's just, it's just bad. Um, there are two Danny Saber remixes that I could not find on YouTube or any of my streams. Uh, this one's not dead yet remix and vigor mortis remix. They both sound awesome. Couldn't find them anywhere. Uh, so if you're a listener and have those songs and think they're great, let us know. Um, but that brings us to the next track. Telling lies.
song that's um, been around was was around for a while before they before they dropped it. Um, and this one has a few remixes too that have almost been as prevalent as this song, um, as the remixes were kind of uh, minor club hits. Um, they launched this song, and Mark, you were talking about how Bowie was embracing computers and the internet, and BowieNet, Bowie.net was his experiment with that. And, uh, yeah, and so he would, uh, he got on there with two other people that worked for him, and the audience had to figure out who the real Bowie was based on how they answered their questions. And he, real Bowie, got in last place, so nobody believed that was actually him. That's how they. That's how they launched the song with their with their website. Telling Lies is very much structured like Little Wonder. It's drum and bass, and then that full band sound hits for that Telling Lies chorus. And, yep. uh, it's swooping and and pretty fun, pretty epic. Uh, it's um, basically uh, the song is uh, me. I'm I'm fast like bad infection gasping for my resurrection uh kind of um this it kind of ties into maybe i was in the, maybe i was in this mode when i was reading this lyrics in dead man walking but predatory nature you know you're famous you have to stay relevant um come straggling in your tattered remnants you come to me with tears and blame i'm your future i'm tomorrow i am the end uh anyways just uh just the kind of if you have less adoration then you're doomed that kind of whole idea um but anyways, I enjoy this song. I think the transitions are really good. It's not uh, as herky-jerky as some of this. This album tends to go from like drum and bass to full band. And it does that, but there's good transitions in between. I, I think this one's fun. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with you. I do think that the moment where the song really uh, barges in, uh, the new pop visionary, uh, that's great. Um it kind of starts out and tries my patience again with some skittering, you know, little drum beats. And, and I'm like, Oh, here we go again. But, um, you know, uh, there's, uh, I, I think it, it quickly becomes more organic to the style of music I prefer. And, um, I actually think that there is, there is a moment where the, the techno stuff does work for me, where it has these warm Eno synths and there's these guitar echoes and Dory's uh, Galen Dorsey's bass kind of goes do 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 do, and the rest of the band comes in and he goes telling lies. It's toward the end there. They do a good rising action section towards the end. Um, it it ends strong. It ends strong. Yeah, telling lies. Mark. Same. Uh, so I, I will agree with both what, what you said. I think that it starts out and I'm just kind of groaning like, oh, here's that drum beat again. Um, but then um, it does have a little bit of more uh, dynamics that does kind of reel you in. Um, I actually do think it's a better version of, let's say, looking for satellites where um, there's just more urgency and he sings it. Uh, pretty damn well and once again you get a little bit more of a band feeling than just let's uh, make something just with the computer so Some 
mixes for this. There was the Feel Good mix by Mark Plotty, who has obviously produced the album. This one's close. It has more of a techno bass line. What I like about this one is they bring out that hoo-ha visionary, but that hoo-ha part, they make that part of the percussion kind of fun. one in the clubs it's it's fine it's one of the better better remixes on this album uh, the last thing you do thing you should do um it's another n- another song that starts off you know jungle musicy, and i really feel like at this point i get it I'm, I'm i'm worn out on that whole style if i'm listening to this album all the way through i just i'm losing patience for it reeves gabrell comes in and kind of saves it for a moment where he launches into a a, a, a guitar shredding riff that has the overall vibe of a kind of like a fury road just tears through you so i'll give it i'll give that to him beyond that reeves gabrell riff the song is very forgettable to me and sounds very canned and low rate mp3 uh i'm i'm you know the more we talk about this record i'm starting to wonder maybe i am a reeves gabrell fan because there's been a couple of points where he actually was the most interesting point of a song this is one of them. The last thing you should do, I say skip it. Yeah, this is my my least favorite on the album as well. Um, it, 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 it Musically, it does fit the, the pastiche of the, record, the rest of the record. Mike Garson's kind of doing something interesting. Reeves is kind of doing something interesting. Um, the lyrics are minimalist. He doesn't say very much in this song at all. And what he does, he talks it. What have you been doing to yourself? It's the last thing you should do. Oh, oh, oh. Um, Bowie claims it's a very, it's a, it's uh one has to be selfish and protective about oneself. If you're going to survive these days. Um, that's how Bowie explained the song. So it's something about being protective of yourself. Um, I like the live drums, the, the, the way they cut those up, um, but his vocals are lazy and this is, um, and aspects of the song uh, are, uh, are giving me Tim machine flashbacks as far as the laziness goes. Mark. Um, so yeah, it, uh, for whatever reason, this is my most forgettable song. Apparently this didn't even, uh, almost not make the album. It was slotted as a B side uh, and then they moved it up. And apparently, uh, Bowie was really wanting to put uh, a version of baby universal on, on here or a stripped down version of, I can't read both 10 machine tracks, which I'm glad he didn't. He also was trying to do bring me the disco King that didn't make it here either. Uh, the only thing I could uh, safely say about this album or this song is that it has Bowie doing a funny version of him saying the word "yeah," <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. All right. Well, the uh, 
believe it or not, we're wrapping this album up here, and one of the biggest hits from it is the penultimate track, I'm Afraid of Americans. All right, so I'm Afraid of Americans is actually the first song from this album that we y'all got to hear if you went out and bought the Showgirls soundtrack. Uh, the Showgirls soundtrack um, also had My Life by the Thrill Kill Cult and Prick on it. Actually, not a bad soundtrack. Um, in fact, if you would love to uh, hear about more about that movie, I'll insert a clip of my brother giving you a, a, a monologue of why it's a queer classic. Hi there. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm uh, Eric's younger brother, and from time to time, I like to chime in with my two cents on um, various subjects that um, I have an interest in, um, and kind of lend my gay perspective, if you will. And it's my understanding that we are discussing David Bowie's contributions to the soundtrack for the 1995 uh, film Showgirls, and. Um, I don't have much to to offer in that sense, and I'll let the experts talk about what the experts know. And um, instead, I'd like to just say a few words about um, the movie Showgirls. And um, you know, I don't I don't have enough time to truly um, you know to truly express my deeply personal thoughts on this this legendary American film brought to us by that. Those horny geniuses, Esther Haas and Verhoeven, who, um, you know, just were operating at the top of their game with this with this piece of, of celluloid. Um, so instead, I'm just going to focus on, you know, what I know best and that, you know, and what I'm an expert in. And, and for me, I feel I'm an expert in um, the the field of uh, iconic female performances on screen. And, you know, you can't think about showgirls without um without thinking about elizabeth berkeley and her performance of nomi malone and um what you know all those idiot critics you know that that just ripped her to shreds when that came out they just didn't really get what the movie actually was about you know like every comment was you know she's dead behind the eyes and you know she's not you know she doesn't seem like she's like all there or you know you know why isn't she speaking right and you know, they're just not understanding that, that Showgirls isn't just a horny sex romp about, you know, Las Vegas behind-the-scenes stripper backstabbing. Um, Showgirls is actually a very sophisticated, uh, thrilling science fiction film, you know, about this alien that, that comes to Earth um, and infiltrates the seedy Las Vegas society to get revenge on these you know assholes that use sex workers to turn a profit and um you know elizabeth berkeley is playing this alien who comes to earth disguised as a human slut and you know her performance is so cerebral and um you know it's so it, it's as if this alien has has studied how women behave based on you know skinemax late night tv and so her performance, it's like 
she's having a fight with herself and her own body, you know, she's not moving correctly, she's, she's, she's dropping things, she's, there's too much energy in certain places and not enough energy in others. And the truth is, she seems to be sort of paranoid that, that people are going to discover, you know, um, discover her secret, you know, so, so she has this like, paranoia within her eyes and and she distracts people with licking stripper poles and taking her top off because you know she's desperately trying to hold on to her secret identity and it all comes to a climax when she's like in the pool having sex with um kyle mclaughlin and and you know she seems like short circuit and she starts flopping around everywhere and it's as if she's you know forgets that she's on earth and instead she's she's back in her home planet um you know fucking Kyle McLaughlin the way that the aliens normally do it on her planet. And it's this truly thrilling scene. And, um, you know, and it's also a deeply layered, horrifying performance by Elizabeth Berkley. Um, and, you know, well, hold on. Maybe I'm talking about the movie Species. Anyways, um, that's what I've got for you. Um, carry on, Eric. All right. Showgirls. Uh, that gave us I'm Afraid of Americans. And that version is actually a scrap, a throwaway from outside. It's actually Brian Eno, Reeves, and Bowie in the outside sessions recording this early version of I'm Afraid of Americans. They don't even say Americans. They say I'm Afraid of the Animals. like a demo um but it's interesting to hear that's where it came from so bowie and his band polished it up for earthling uh it's 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 slower tempo it's got a lot of vocal uh samples ha 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 um it was inspired by a time when he was um he was out out of the country and he saw mcdonald's opening up and uh and people were going apeshit for it he's like really you gotta, and it was this kind of consumer culture taking over the general aggressiveness of America and capitalism, and that kind of inspired this song. Um, and uh, it's on the album. tapes over to Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, who they remixed it one more time to give us the video version. sounding song with Bowie singing and that may be the most famous version that was the video version um, that sounds like that's the one that brought us all of this record um, what do you guys think about this song well I think that 
the album version is inferior. I know that uh, Reeves just on Twitter a few days ago said that that's the best version of the song. I understand how proud he is of their version, but you cannot listen to the album version and compare it to the video version and tell me that the album version is better. The Trent Reznor produced version has more atmosphere because it's Trent Reznor and also has such flourishes as Trent Reznor backing vocals, uh, extra drum effects during that scene where Trent Reznor fakes shotgunning the, or machine gunning the car up. <laughs> it has it has the uh, the anxiety dread sense that Nine Schnells are known for towards the end there. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah the, the back, the, the, the motor sense, yeah. the reverse sense. And then oh, it yeah. has the dun, dun, dun. It even has a little bit of like, you know, kind of like uh, the second half of uh, Downward Spiral uh, guitar strumming. The dun, 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 dun. God is an American. Listen, we're all Nine Nails fans. That's why the podcast started. And so the version that sounds more like a Nine Nails song to me is the preferred version. That version is a great song. Love it. Love that version of the song. Pretty big fan of the video. The version on the album, it's pretty good. It's definitely not bad. But during the second half of the uh, album version... I'm missing all of the stuff you get in the video version. Yep, here, here. That's uh, my same feelings on it. I don't think that this is uh, a bad version on the album by any means. It's good, but it just makes me pine for the Reznor version. Sorry. Um, and one thing in particular, that Showgirls version, um, I had to really you know, make sure that I was hearing things right. It doesn't sound like he's saying, I'm afraid of Americans. He's saying, I'm afraid of the animals. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. He was. It's. I'm afraid of the animals. And then. And then, as the song goes on, it it slowly shifts to Americans at the very end. But yeah, you got. Okay. It. And so I also in my notes was uh, seeing that it was. Did you mention the Johnny Mnemonic connection? Oh no! No okay. no no. So apparently that was also originally supposed to be called Dummy, and it was uh, quickly slated for that Johnny Mnemonic movie, but he pulled it because the film sounded bad. Um, Eno told Bowie to rescind the offer. It sounded bad. One ill omen was that Bono had been offered a role and he had turned it down. Um, I've never seen Johnny Mnemonic, but I'm surprised that, uh, um, they, they didn't just go full speed ahead on that one. But anyways, um, albums, are it's the, uh, the songs William, right. Gib- William Gibson novel that's, or a short story that it's based on. And he's, he's pretty solid, but uh, yeah, that movie is supposed to be a, a, a clunker. And my wife actually reads all the Gibsons and she said that movie's bad. So there you go. There you go. Yes. I've, I've seen Johnny Monomic. Um, I, you know, virtuosity, strange days, all those movies are from the same cloth. Strange days was good. Though. Strange days and virtuosity um, aren't too bad, actually. <laughs> right. 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 But, uh, that was, that was actually, that, that's what, that was a fun genre. The mid to, Late 90s, actually, let's let's go early to late 90s, early to late 90s, you know, uh, uh, virtual reality and yeah, yeah, virtual reality, millennium anxiety, virtual reality nonsense. You had your lawnmower man, virtuosity, Johnny Monomic, Strange Days, and then uh, finally the Matrix did it right. The lyrics uh, lyrics of the song are great. I I mean, Johnny, he's talking about Johnny um, might be a callback to the song um, Repetition, where Johnny is the abusive spouse. Um, I doubt it. 
but but in a way in a way though he is uh red-blooded he's 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 uh joe liquor um uh red-blooded american he wants he wants his pussy in cars listen hold on stop everything stop everything all right you guys might notice that sometimes at the end of these episodes we all get a little loopy well that's because uh since we're all families we have families we got to record them late and it's nearing midnight on the sunday and that might be why sometimes Eric, uh, you know, says a whole fucking uh, an essay and we miss half of it. Um, but that's no excuse, Eric. That's no excuse. Joe Licker? Joe Joe Licker? What's his name? <laughs> George Licker. George Licker. Okay. George Licker. My God. Wow. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Um, all right. So uh, to get that Nine Inch Nails remix, they released a single. Um, the cool thing is, is the whole band was involved. Charlie Clauser, your Chris Verena, your whole post Downward Spiral band was involved in this single and played on it. It was, and it was mixed by Dave Rave Ogilvie and Brian Pollock at Nothing Studios. Um, we talked about the, the Nine Inch Nails version. It's fantastic. There are uh, four, I'm sorry, five other remixes on here, all worth your time. The version two is kind of like creepy, airy. Um, it's noisier than the other one, but uh, um, it's not as fun as the original, but it is kind of cool. The drums are huge in volume two. Volume three has Ice Cube. And uh, he keeps saying, Murder America, Murder America, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> he shouts that. He just, he's like shouting things most of the song until you get to like the last third and he does this eight bar verse. That is just. Murder America. Murder America. Murder America. Welcome to America. We in the scary Fuck around and bury ya. Rich, we might marry ya. Look who's in your area. And the cool thing is the music's not hip hoppy at all. It just sounds like a kind of electro uh, remix, um, but the bass is huge, which helps. And then, yeah, that Ice Cube eight bar verse is fantastic. Um, uh, volume four uh, sounds like something off further down the spiral. It sounds like a, a coil, one of the coil remixes. not as fun but it definitely takes me back to like uh fixed or something like that um volume five is actually not it's fotech if you remember fotech did my favorite remix of the hand that feeds so obviously during this era was close to trent and does a very just kind of a fun glitch dance version of the song but it's ultimately pretty rep uh, repetitive and forgettable <laughs> get the uh icing on the cake which is volume six it's a 12 11 minute song 
where it's just the live it's just the live band doing a dub jam. They're just playing the melody to "I'm Afraid of Americans." There's not really any vocals, and they're just jamming um, using all of their their tech live. And You never really got to hear that. Nine Inch Nails just in the studio, just jamming on a melody. And uh, it's kind of a fun, fun thing. I don't know if I'll listen to it again anytime soon, but it's just, just fun to hear them do that. Full band. Um, do you guys do you have any thoughts on that, that single? I don't. I think we may have covered a little bit of that on our last season, so I didn't spend the time on revisiting it for this episode. Right. I do got to say that uh, that video holds up. I watch that video occasionally. I think that's the video with you know David Bowie walking around New York. Some streets of New York I've actually been to myself. I don't know if you guys have, but they're they're iconic. Uh, I don't know. They look like they're just like downtown areas, but I definitely that opening shot. I've been to that uh, that corner where that park is. Someone could even say and, New York um, City was a was in a, in a character in that video. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that about anything before. My God. But, uh, you know, right now with the, you know, the, the, it's this song kind of got brought up again. Once things started getting crazy a couple years ago. And then now you watch that video and it's even more, uh, I don't know, prescient. And then I, I didn't even think about it. Look at the album cover for the single. It's got, it's just this rough, just sketch. And it's got a crazy guy in the foreground being like, Oh, I'm afraid of Americans. And then the American flag and then a tree with somebody lynched. And um, I never really realized how striking that cover is. And uh, yeah, that says a lot. So good song, though, that uh, that Nine Snails mix, man. You can't beat it. So good. So So let's uh, let's move on to the final track and (laughs) let's not talk about it long. Law Earthlings on fire. So this song is pretty simple. There's not a lot. There's not a lot to it. This doesn't sound like very much else on this album. It is electronic influence, but not really in the drum and bass way. Um, I actually like the pushing ahead the dame comparison to what he calls <laughs> uh, essentially electro trash, like like my life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Um, it just sample heavy, uh, just repetitive uh, industrial pop, I guess. And I think that's absolutely fair with this song. Um, the music isn't terribly interesting, but it's fun and it's an interesting way to close it out. Um, if you dig into what he's saying in the song, it's basically like there is no, it's, it, it, it's, it's this whole like self-reflective piece that Bowie has always done is like, you know, what is the meaning to everything? But he's saying there is no answer to that. It's the journey. It's figuring out. I mean, it's pretty obvious philosophical, you know, ideas right there, but um that's what it's about. Um, I don't know. It's a fun kind of way to close it. I don't take the song too seriously. It's, it's, it's thin as paper. Um, 
but that's that's this closer track. What do you guys think? Yeah, I I don't. They should have closed with uh, "I'm Afraid of Americans." I find this track to be forgettable, tedious, unnecessary. It should have been a B side. Um, the only thing I had to say is I find it humorous that one of the the that sample, whatever it's coming from, they say something about it being a you know an issue of sovereignty or I want sovereignty, and some lunatic on Facebook that I've removed now. Someone I've known for years, they became a uh, an anti-mask person, and they just started saying like, "It's not a question of uh, of of health. This is a question of my personal sovereignty." And I'm just like, "Shut up! Get out of here! Gosh, you're so annoying." Um, anyhow, that this track is uh, obnoxious to me. They should have ended with the uh, "I'm Afraid of Americans." Yeah, it's certainly a choice to end with this. Um, it uh, has like that goofy James Bond, like like towards the end there. And I don't want knowledge. And him shouting through a megaphone. And um, one thing in particular uh, that I noticed and the comparison, I think that was uh, also brought forth by pushing ahead of the dame was how it really feels very similar to that palace Athenia that was on black tie, white noise. Oh, right. Yep. And I like that song. That song's fine, but this is like just goofy. Just a, it's certainly a choice to end this album with this song because it, it's goofy as shit, man. <laughs> Again, oh, yeah. black tie, white noise. They're, they're the albums are six years apart, but they have a lot of, uh, parallels. There, there are, well, let's rate this. There's a couple scraps to get to, but let's let's rate this one. What do you guys think? 2.75 out of five bolts for me. Um, I don't think that it's a horrible album. It is definitely considered more in his mid-tier. Um, I think there's some interesting things that are happening here. It's never boring to the sense where you want to skip the track, but you're always just kind of wondering, is this track is still going on, huh? Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's fine. I, I, it's right in the middle for me. So 2.75. I, uh, I'll give this bad boy a 3.5 out of five. Um, I, when it's, when it stirs me, it stirs me big time. Um, it is dated, but I also have a certain amount of reverence for the material that is dating it. The, the drum and bass of the, of the late nineties. Um, it does go on. Some songs go on too long, but they're trying, I appreciate why they're doing it. They're giving, they're letting the instruments kind of breathe and, and, and mess around in that, in that genre. Um, it's experimental. He's got some stuff to say. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I find it fun. Even, even the ones that the songs I don't like, I still am having fun from start to finish on this album. So 3.5 out of five. I'll give it a 2.5. I, I'm glad that it led to the version of I'm afraid of Americans that I adore. Um, some of the songs are very good. Most of the songs have moments that do enter entertain me. And um, the few songs on here that I really like, I really like a lot. Um, like your seven years in Tibet. And uh, I am a pretty big fan of little wonder. Um, and if anything, as we talked about it tonight, the more I thought about it and dug into it, the more I started to, kind of maybe figure out what Reeves Gabrels was doing here. And I think that's a sign of a, a record that has some merit to it. 
that when you discuss it, you start to uh, change your opinion a little bit. So it definitely wasn't, uh, you know, they didn't half ass it. So I'll give them that much. And it's not hard on the ears. It's just a little, you know, two time stamped for my case. And, you know, Eric, to your point, you like some of the dated aspects or at least that genre. Um, Some of the, the sampling choices they make on this to me, just pull me out of it because I feel like it's too on the nose for that genre. It just seems like a, Electronica 101 at times to me. So, but uh, not bad. Yeah. Not yeah. great. That's fair. And the people that they're emulating, uh, you know, I mean, get a, get a Luke Vibert or a Aphex Twin drum and bass uh, measure. And you're going to hear stuff more interesting than, than most of this album. I mean, I'll, I'll concur to that, but. Um... All right, Lennox, what do you think about this album? I would give it a, 3.5 or 4 out of 5. Oh, okay. What kind of songs did you like on it? I liked I'm Afraid of Americans, and my least favorite was probably... Hmm, um, this, I'm looking for satellites. Okay. Okay. Hey, I told you you guys are nerds! What's the problem with being a nerd? Uh, still, still kind of fun. One thing I wanted to talk about, uh, various and sundry, and we'll get through these quick is I did really like, and I've listened to it before. I didn't know it was actually even released from this uh, cycle, if you will. Was, uh, was it called Eric? The seven years in America, seven months in America. You got it. That's the tour album for this. The seven months in America. And the first, uh, half of it at least is acoustic versions of many of these songs and other songs, but you've got dead man walking on there. I think seven years in Tibet's on there. Um, and they're all in a live setting. They kind of sound like it might be like an amoeba or a record store. Um, it's it, it sounds like they're sitting on stools, storytellers, unplugged kind of vibe. In between songs, David Bowie is telling stories about how he came up with these tracks. That's uh, the anecdote Eric has about Jimmy Page is found on there. And David Bowie, I always like it when I'm reminded he is dude's got a sense of humor. He was very funny. He's doing impressions and funny voices when he's telling these stories. And he's charming as hell. But also, I think some of these songs sound better when stripped down to their essence. Um, like uh, Dead Man Walking, I think sounds great when it's just uh, David Bowie and a couple of guitar players. Right. And, and and it sounds kind of like a Johnny Cash America uh, record. So Seven Months in America, I really enjoy. I think people should seek it out to get a different version of some of these songs. Many of these songs I said would, you know, when you strip everything away, I think there's more there. Less is more. You get the less is more in a couple of these, uh, these versions on that, that EP. Yeah. I mean, and not to disparage that at all, but I'm going to call those like the coffee shop versions of, uh, some of the songs on here. And that's not a bad thing at all. Like you said, Dead Man Walking kind of shines when you, when you boil it down. Um, that album's cool. When they, when they start bringing in the drum programming and stuff, you can kind of, get a taste of what their live band was at the time, because I don't necessarily think it's the best example because it was definitely more bombastic when they would do their full tour, but it's intimate setting and the Q and a part and, and the, the banter is fantastic. Um, and it's not unlike the two EPs that were released recently from this era with this band. You have, um, uh, what is it? Do I even wonder what's And then, uh, you have changes now Bowie. And um, those were both radio sessions from this era with this band 
where they would start acoustic and then eventually they'd start bringing up their like it's very like toned down but then some drum drum pro programming and stuff like that and uh and they would play their songs and i would say there there are some surprises on these that i that are that are that are worth a damn we all were blown away by the song stay and it's not his full funk band playing it but it's kind of fun to hear a drum and bass version of stay so that's on there um like repetition sounds a lot of fun uh there's a quicksand version that's pretty good um you got a uh, fame with a little drum and bass is 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 fantastic uh so i don't know there there there's 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 some treats on those new eps did you guys listen to those at all I listened to Is It Any Wonder and Changes Now Bowie, but I didn't listen to that seven years or seven months in America. Um, and right. what I really liked off of Is It Any Wonder, I, I liked the Stay 97 version. Um, yeah. I thought that was pretty good. Um, I didn't really, uh, Nuts and Fun uh, were not, that's two different songs, by the way. Um, I didn't really have anything to write home about those uh the eno mix of man who sold the world i think we talked a little bit about that when we did our man who sold the world right um that was fine but yeah yeah that one's good because they're because when they played man who sold the world live they did like a sitar version like an eastern version of that but sure. the eno one is not that Eno one is is more ambient sense right am yeah I, am, am i getting that right that's okay. right yeah yeah um and you mentioned fun fun was a b-side from this era in 1998 uh he uh released a cd-rom for bowie net and you had to log into the site and then download the on your dial-up internet and then and it was like the AOL sample discs and you had to load up BowieNet and this is the song you would get fun and there's not much to honestly there's not much to the song at all um, there's barely any vocals it's um just kind of a weird uh, dusty old thing off the shelf they pulled out but uh, you know you can check it out. But on the other side, I did like Changes Now, Bowie. I thought there was a little bit more to that. And I don't know. It sounds like that was just a rehearsal um, sort of recording for the big birthday bash. Oh, you might be onto something there. I think that's yeah. what that was. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds good. So, yeah, that, that, that was. So was that your favorite one of the EPs? Yeah, I would prefer yeah. that one over. Is it any wonder? Yeah. It's good. Um, the last thing, the only like uh, last little scrap we're going to talk about is uh, that came out from this era is the uh, techno uh, producer and actor extraordinaire from such films as The World Is Not Enough and Snatch. I don't know. But Goldie made an album called Saturn's Return. Um, where he had a 40 piece orchestra. He had KRS-One and Noel Gallagher um there the whole first side of the album is an hour long and it's one song and then the second one splits into more songs and bowie's on the song truth and it's an interesting song it's very low tempo um bowie's voice kind of phases in and out it's very much in the background um Set away. 
return. Yeah, I didn't catch that one, so I'll I'll make sure to check that out. But I think we're done, folks. I think you're right. So let's go ahead and r- roll the dice. We have three albums left. Uh, those three albums are Outside, well, excuse me, Heroes, Outside, and Hours. In order. So okay. let's see what we're going to get. Oh, I can smell the finish line. All right, that's a two. So that would be outside. So we are going to take a look at outside before, and then the last two that we'll then cover is going to be either heroes or ours. So that'll be fun. So outside, I'm sure Eric will have uh, this one has a definite world building thing element to it. So I'm sure Eric will. Probably explain a little bit of the backstory as you know, we go. Oh God, you were all you were all in so much fucking trouble. If if, yeah. if the last album we roll is ours, I'm quitting the podcast. <laughs> Just, <laughs> that would be, we can either this is funny. It's either it's either going to be as epic as it can get or sad trombone of an album. Uh, <laughs> all right. Good night. Oh boy. All right. Good night, guys. All right, guys, that's it. We hope that we always brought you closer to pod.